So glad to gather together with you as well. My name is Wes, one of the pastors here uh, at Dunbar Heights, and glad to worship with you in these ways already, and now glad to worship with you through God's Word as we take a look at a passage and talk through it together. We're going to talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, whatever it is, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 15, and if you're able, if you could stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 7, beginning at verse 15, Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. We'll need some help with this one. Uh, I always do, but I feel especially the need today. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for your word. Um, we want to be those who submit ourselves underneath your word uh, and not stand over it in judgment. So would you open our eyes, open our hearts, our ears to what it is you want to say to us, what it is you want to show us. And then, God, I just ask that you would accomplish the good work that you have for this passage, for this part of your word we're looking at today. You tell us. You don't send out your word and it accomplishes nothing. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. So God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us today? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, those of you who have uh, ever seen the 2002 cry out, crime biography, Catch Me If You Can, you'll already be familiar with the story of a young, extremely bright Pan American Airlines pilot named Frank Abagnale. Um, Frank, along with being a pilot, also worked uh, as a doctor at one point in his life, and he even passed the Louisiana State Bar Exam. The problem, however, first of all, is that Frank Abagnale is and was neither a pilot, a physician, or a lawyer. He just dressed up like he was, most often uh, impersonating a Pan American Airlines pilot so that, and all these things, so that he could cash fraudulent checks and elude authorities. Second problem is that hundreds and hundreds of people believed him. They believed his impersonations and fell victim to his crimes. Uh, confidence games or confidence schemes, as they're sometimes called, are crimes in which people are robbed of money, valuables, possessions, sometimes everything they have, not by force, not at the point of a gun or of a knife, but willingly as their trust. Their, their confidence is gained and then it's used against them. 
And I bring it up uh, this morning as we continue in our teaching series through the Gospel of Matthew entitled Kingdom Come, uh, not to warn you against uh, a threat of like financial fraudsters in the world, although yeah, like watch out for that. Nor am I trying to help you, uh, you know, stock up your Netflix must-watch lists. I bring it up, well, because Jesus brings it up. Uh, Jesus brings up the subject of impersonators here. Um, we could say these false prophets, we could call them spiritual impersonators. Those who, who would claim, come claiming to speak for God when in fact they do not. And maybe you'd want to ask, well, okay, well, how important an issue is that? I mean, maybe that's something that was kind of a big deal in Jesus' day, first century church. Um, maybe this is just talking about People having disagreements, differences of opinion, quibbling over minor points of theology in the church. Maybe, maybe that's kind of the, the height of this. And yet, I hope you see from Jesus' comparison of these false prophets to ravenous wolves, masquerading as sheep right in the sheep pen alone, I hope you can see just how devastating the results these spiritual impersonators can bring in the church left unattended to. I mean, last time I checked, wolves and sheep, they don't play well together. And we're going to dig more deeply into what these attacks might look like, uh, how it is that we can identify wolves amongst the sheep as we begin to look at these false prophets that Jesus tells us to beware of. And, and by the way, this is one of those places where what we looked at a few weeks ago, where Jesus was teaching us about discernment, how to make right judgments there at the beginning of Matthew 7, that's going to become immediately relevant here. But along with false prophets, what I want us to see is that something Jesus is also warning us as his kingdom citizens about here in this passage is false professions. That is, not those who would claim to be speaking for God when in fact they are not, but those who would claim to be in relationship with God when in fact they are not. So, false prophets false professions. Jesus is warning us about the danger of both of these things in the church today, the primary difference really being with false prophets. We need to be wary and, and cautious against those who would seek to deceive us, and with false professions, we need to be wary and cautious of really deceiving ourselves. That's really the, the difference between the two of these. So if you close your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to this passage? Matthew 7, 15, follow along with me. I want you to follow closely with what we're looking at today. And, and I just want to acknowledge, I want to just say right off the bat, like I know, this is a lot, right? This feels like a lot to take on on a Sunday morning. This is heavy. This is dark in some ways. But my plan is, while absolutely considering the weight and the seriousness of what Jesus is addressing here, we're also going to consider the gospel light, the gospel hope and freedom that available to every single one of us in the face of these things Jesus is warning us about as well. So we're going to do both. Okay, so, so let's, let's dig into this. Let's look first of all at false prophets. False prophets. Now, when it comes to something like false prophets, <clears throat> this is something you actually see showing up in both the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, this is not some sort of new phenomenon that Jesus is talking about here all of a sudden in this passage, which makes sense if you remember that this, we're talking about a culture here where throughout their history, God had chosen various 
men and women throughout the course of uh, the Old Testament scriptures to communicate his messages for him. These, these prophets who would speak God's messages for him. The problem, as Leon Morris uh, states this well, a prophet was one who could speak directly from God, he says, who could say, thus saith the Lord. In a day when it was widely accepted that prophets could speak authoritatively in this way, whether by foretelling the future, denouncing evil, or commending good, there must have been strong temptation for some people to claim direct inspiration, whether they had it or not. And, and that's exactly what ended up happening, actually. Um, example, uh, in the Old Testament, for example, you hear um, God speaking through one of his true prophets, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, a passage we looked at just a few weeks ago in our vision series, talking about a flourishing society. Here, uh, Jeremiah says uh, on behalf of God, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie, and they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Okay, so this is a real thing. This, this, this happens. And if you look earlier in Jeremiah, you see the kinds of lies that they were <clears throat> falsely prophesying in God's name. Uh, here we, say, we he, uh, see in Jeremiah 23, filling you with vain hopes, Jeremiah tells the people of Israel. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say no evil shall come upon you. Earlier, Jeremiah chapter 8, God complains these false, about these false prophets, saying, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, where there is no peace. So even from these few examples alone, I think you can already see how devastating it would be for God's people having someone coming to them, claiming to speak for God, claiming to speak on behalf of them, and, and, and just telling everybody, I said, No, 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 it's fine. Don't, don't worry about it. Everything's good. You, you, there's, there's no problem whatsoever. Telling them all this stuff when they did need to worry. Telling them all this stuff when things were, were, were not at all good. <clears throat> like most of you, I'm assuming, will, will remember just this past summer, all the wildfires um, tearing through our province. Imagine the devastating results for the people of Lytton, for instance. If someone claiming to speak on behalf of the government claiming to speak on behalf of the uh, fire protective services, telling families ready to evacuate. Actually, you know what? You don't need to evacuate. Fires actually aren't that bad. They're not going to reach your property. You can unpack and just stay here. You're fine. Imagine the devastating results of someone doing that. So same thing here. The, the, this is the devastating results. Why this is such a big deal. And when we come to the New Testament, and our passage today in particular, you see the very same threat continuing to come against God's kingdom citizens. Interestingly, as a few different commentators pointed out, given the flow of Jesus' arguments and, and what he presented in our passage we looked at just last week about a broad road that leads to destruction and a narrow path that leads to life, it would seem the false teaching here in this context was telling would-be kingdom citizens, hey, this broad path, it leads to life too. Don't worry, this, this path will take you to life as well. Or telling those who had already entered the narrow gate to turn back. As F.D. Bruner put it, quote, If we are not to enter the broad way to destruction, we will need to be continually liberated from those who would beckon us to it. But if this is a real danger, 
uh, that we all face, either as kingdom citizens seeking to walk the narrow path or those maybe seeking to find the narrow path, how are we supposed to recognize these wolves? How do we recognize them? When, when, when their messages from God seem so compelling, they, they seem to love Jesus with the same passion that I do, their, their sheep costumes are so convincing. How do we recognize them? Well, the first clue Jesus gives us is there in verse 21. Look with me. First, he reminds us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, which is just to, to remind us something that you probably already know. It's just to say, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Just because someone claims to speak for God, can say all the right words, go through all the same motions, doesn't automatically confirm that they're a citizen of the kingdom. And then, along with being discerning, seeking to look beyond what someone says alone, Jesus tells us even more explicitly there in verse 16 and verse 20. He says, you'll know them by their fruits. That's how you'll know. You'll, You'll know them by their fruits. And then going on to kind of compare and contrast natural and expected results of different kinds of trees and applying it to the actions and behaviors that we observe in others. He's saying, look for the the results of their teaching. Look look what shows up as a result of the things that they're saying. That's how you're going to know if they're false teachers. But I think what's interesting and very telling is that Jesus tells us to look for fruit when discerning where somebody's truly at and not kind of other signs of wolfishness. Why does he do that? Well, I think because fruit takes time in order to discern, doesn't it? It's something that takes time. Like either you don't see the fruit right away because it's not the season for fruit, or, or maybe it's difficult to assess and distinguish the fruit properly, properly because your vantage point is too far away. You can't see clearly. Oh, are those plums, are those figs, I don't know. I'm not close enough to see what, what it really is. All kinds of things. And I think, I think those realities about fruit inspection are intentional. Jesus purposely asks us to look for fruits because it calls us for careful, measured, prayerful discernment of someone over time, lest we just jump to false conclusions about somebody, or like we learned back in Matthew chapter 7, lest we begin to judge someone hypocritically with a measure that we don't also use for ourselves. But when you're thinking about how to apply this today, like in real time, all of a sudden this becomes a lot more complicated. A lot more difficult to just easily apply because on the one hand, you can hear a teaching like this and suddenly everyone straps on their hats and rifles and becomes professional wolf hunters. Everyone's walking around church looking over their shoulder, looking at people with the side eye, whatever, you know, saying stuff like, you know what, last week in home group I heard Bob say something that sounded a little bit off. I think he's probably a false teacher. We should think about just getting him out of the home group entirely. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, okay. Let's, let's calm down a bit on that side. That feels like we've swung the pendulum lake way too far over here to one extremely wrong side. And yet, on the other hand, we can be so cautious of never judging anybody. We're just so anxious that I would never make the wrong judgment that we swing the pendulum to the equally wrong side on the other end. Where, where even when we see real rotten fruit right in front of us with the words and actions of someone, they're, they're harming people's faith. They're leading them off the narrow path or causing them to abandon it entirely, and then we're just saying nothing. Well, it's not my place to judge. I don't want to... Just allowing them to, like, feed at will on the sheep. So what is it? Like, what, what is the right middle ground that we need to find in order to rightly 
assess these wolves among the sheep. This is clearly a very important matter of discernment in the church. Well, the good news, first of all, is that God has already at least one built-in safeguard against wolves in the church, and that is by installing pastor shepherds to watch over the individual gatherings of his church. So that means part of Dave's job and my job as pastors is to be those who watch out for wolves. That's, that's part of our job as pastors. So when, whenever we see or are informed of wolfish behavior, our job is to check it out, to investigate it right away, and then respond to it as, as clearly and in the most decisive way possible. And no, no, that is not at all to say for a moment that in some rare, awful cases, wolves haven't been so successful in their impersonations that a false prophet could actually be a pastor in a church himself. I'm not saying that that's impossible, but by his mercy, this is something that I have rarely seen, heard of, and on the whole, God has been faithful again and again to place, yes, feeble, imperfect, yet faithful shepherds who seek to guard the church against these kind of attacks. But if you look at what Jesus says in the passage, you know he's, you can see he's not just referring to pastors. He's not saying, pastors, make sure you watch out for, for false prophets. He says it to all his kingdom citizens. Just says, beware of false prophets. So what does this look like for you personally? If you're not here as a pastor today, but a, a member of this church, someone who gathers together with us, what's, what's your role in all of this? Well, while I'm not suggesting for a moment that we should just shut off our brains as it relates to looking around us, thinking about the people around us in this, as it relates to this church, the leaders of this church, I'm not suggesting we be undiscerning um, with other maybe teachers you listen to online, podcasts you listen to, maybe other faith communities you're a part of. What I am suggesting is it might be incredibly helpful to broaden your perspective, broaden how you think about determining false teachers and false prophets. For there's no question, the immediate application of what Jesus is talking about here is false teachers in the church, watch out for that. That's something that's a real threat we need to watch out for. But what we can also need to see here, as F.D. Bruner once said, again, false prophets, he said, can also be persons outside the church, in culture, who seek to seduce us from Jesus' hard road to culture's seemingly more pleasant road. Which means, listen, false prophets can be anyone, anyone or anything that's seeking to divert us off the narrow path or to keep us from entering it to begin with. That's, that's how we can really determine someone or something that is a false prophet who has that kind of influence in our lives. Which means a big part of the task of discernment for every kingdom citizen is not solely to just say, okay, well, I need to look around my church specifically, and that's my only sphere of influence where I need to be careful and watch out for this. It means I need to consider who it is that I'm putting my trust in. Who am I putting my confidence in, in general, in my life? And then to discern whether, like, what I'm watching, uh, the, the friend group that I'm a part of and that I'm hanging out with and listening to their advice, uh, the, the content I consume on TV and social media, whatever it is, all those things, whether that isn't actually accomplishing the very same goal as these false prophets are in the church. Namely, leading you off the narrow path that Jesus says to lead, that leads to life and gradually leading you to be swept back up in the mass of crowds on the broad path again that Jesus says leads to destruction. What's the fruit 
of what you're taking in. That's how we discern and determine that influence in our lives. Okay, there's definitely way more we could say. We could spend a lot of time on that. But I think generally speaking, I believe that's what Jesus wants us to know about impersonators in the church who are actually wolves in sheep's clothing. But if you look again at what Jesus says in this second half of our passage here, beginning at verse 21, you begin to see there's a second type of impersonator Jesus wants to warn us against as well. And these are people within the church who've made false professions. False professions. So here's what I want to do. I want to just like read through what Jesus says here quickly and then we'll just talk about it for a minute. So starting at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. And I just want to, I want to just name the fear that I have right out of the gate in coming to you with a passage like this in Matthew's gospel because there's no question you read a passage like this and it's scary. Like this really sobering to, to read something like that and, and it requires real discernment, not of others but of our own hearts to discern whether or not we could be those who know a lot about Jesus but who are not known by him. That is, those who wear the costume of a kingdom citizen, but don't own the reality of it. But the hard thing is what I often see people do in response to this passage, they respond to it with a kind of panic and fear and worry. Okay, well, that means maybe, maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe I need to pray to receive Jesus again. I need to do more stuff. I need to really show that I love Jesus. Jesus, you know I love you, right? Like They respond with kind of a panic way. And what I'm desperately afraid of is creating any kind of false sense of doubt in anyone when it's unwarranted, when, when, when you don't need to be. So obviously, I guess there's kind of a sweet spot, like somewhere in the middle, between creating a false sense of doubt on the one hand and a misguided overconfidence on the other. I just want you to know I'm aware of the danger. I'm aware of the danger. I'm sensitive to the reality of creating either one of those errors as we talk about this. But I feel like if, if Jesus was willing to risk talking about it, then we should be willing to look at it and, and, and address it and just see what he says. But there's a number of key things that are being shown in these, voice, these verses that I want to point out to begin with. First of all, look at verse 22. Notice that Jesus frames this whole discussion around a certain day that he refers to as that day. Because many will say to me on that day, I, I don't want to get caught in the weeds here of like, just going too deeply into this, but just for time's sake, whenever you see that language of the day or that day, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, it's almost always referring to uh, the judgment day. The final judgment day, that day Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And it's the day which the book of Revelation depicts in just this epic language and imagery when we will all stand before the throne of God to be judged for the deeds that we've done in this life, whether for good or for evil. Notice next, in each of those three verses, Jesus speaks in personal terms when describing this judgment taking place. You notice that? He says, not everyone who says to me, on that day many will say to me, and then I will declare to them. Do you notice that? So Jesus, this means, is not a passive observer in this judgment taking place. He's the one sitting on the throne as the judge himself. 
Jesus plainly, plainly says this, John 5, 22, he says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So this is Jesus sitting on the judgment throne. Lastly, notice once again, verse 21. Jesus contrasts what someone says, their profession, with their deeds, specifically in this case, the deed being the one who does the will of the Father. And I know that can be a little bit confusing because as you go on to verse 22, you see people standing before the judgment seat of Christ, talking about all this stuff they've done, all these religious activities of cast out demons, people being healed, all this stuff that they've done in his name. And then Jesus still saying, no, I never knew you. So what's going on here? How do we, how do we deal with this? Well, here's the point, and, and this is so, so important. I need you to listen. Really focus on what I'm saying here. What Jesus is contrasting here is not people who did enough. People who did enough good stuff, followed God well enough, knew all the right doctrines in order to make it into heaven and those who didn't. That's not the contrast here. The contrast, what Jesus is contrasting here, are those who trusted him as their savior. Those who put their confidence in his sacrifice on the cross alone to secure their citizenship in heaven and those who were seeking to be their own saviors. That's what he's contrasting here. Look again at the interaction Jesus describes between himself and these people who profess to know him in verse 22. Look, he says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, now that's an expression both expressing Jesus' divinity, they're calling him Lord, it's also an expression of their passion and excitement about him. These are people with right doctrine. These are people who are excited about Jesus and love him. But look at what they go on to say. They say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do Mighty works in your name, which, yeah, on the surface sounds like someone who's a true follower of Jesus operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Great. But what they're actually doing, and the reason Jesus says, I never knew you, is because what they're doing is not presenting evidence of their relationship with him. What they're actually doing is presenting their credentials. They're presenting their spiritual resume and how they've earned their place in the kingdom. Which is why Jesus responds with, I never knew you. We're, we're not in a relationship together, actually. Tim Keller summarizes the interaction like this. He says, these are people who show up on Judgment Day and say, Lord, Lord, we believe you're Jesus. We believe you're the Son of God. But we did this and this and this. Now reward us. Maybe they believe Jesus is God. Maybe they believe Jesus is their example or their inspiration. But he's not their Savior, they are being their own saviors. And so again, being sensitive to not want to create false doubt in anyone, on the one hand, but not wanting to create a false sense of security. Have anybody walk out of here continuing to wear the costume of a kingdom citizen? On the other hand, let's just bring this down to the floor here. I believe what Jesus is absolutely calling each and every person, the reason he presents this to us is he's calling each and every single one of us in light of that day which we must all stand before and face one day is to simply discern your own heart. He's calling each and every one of us to answer the question honestly, what is the basis of my relationship with Jesus? What is the basis of it? 
Is it a true relationship based on his saving work on the cross alone so that I know and am known by him? Or is it a false profession? Am I just simply wearing the costume of a kingdom citizen where I know all the right things to say, I believe all the right things and perform all the right actions, but I'm trusting in my own spiritual resume to earn my acceptance before him, which as we just saw clearly is no relationship at all and offers no hope for pardon. Keller once more says it this way. He said, there are those who are being good, but they're being good as a way to try to control God to get him to bless them. And then there are those who believe they're saved by grace and that because of what Jesus has done for them, they are completely adopted, accepted, and brought in. And now listen to what he says. He goes on, this is so, so important. Everybody will meet Jesus on judgment day. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is, you're going to meet me eventually, so why not meet me in grace now? And that's it, man. Like that is, that's the hope, that is the offer of the gospel to every single one of us in the face of that great and terrible day. Because there's not a person who's ever lived, who's ever going to do enough stuff, who's going to earn their way into the kingdom, earn right standing with God, and yet... As Paul summarizes so well, Ephesians chapter 2, this is the passage we read often and consider often here, when he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Do you see it? Do you, do you hear it in the way Paul summarizes it? To be known by Jesus is accomplished by simply receiving his grace, by trusting in his debt-canceling work alone already accomplished for you. Which means if there's any fear in your heart, any, any worry or, or stress or anxiety in your heart this morning in reading this, listen, the only false profession anyone even needs to worry about is where you would stand before him trusting in your own works rather than his. That's the only false profession anyone needs to worry about. So as I said when we began, Jesus is warning us about two equally dangerous and devastating issues in the kingdom false prophets, and false professions. Let's think about false prophets for just a second. Think about your own life. Who are the false prophets in your life right now? Who are those, if you think of your life right now, that you know are devouring your faith, leading you further and further away from the narrow path that leads to life? My encouragement to you would be as serious about discerning the answer to that question. Who are the people? Who are the practices? Who are the, the friend groups and, and places that are eating your faith alive? Be as serious about answering that question as those huddled in their home with fires raging all around them would be. Who are the voices you can trust? Who are the voices that you can trust will lead you on the path to life and safety, even if it is a difficult path? And which are the voices that you know right now are telling you, just, just, just chill, everything's fine, even as smoke starts to fill up the bedrooms? 
And I'm thinking about false professions. When you read a passage like this, I, I don't know anyone who's serious about their faith who, who reads that and doesn't have a sense of pause and is just like, wow, I need, to, I need to look at this. I need to think about this. Is this me? What's the basis? What am I trusting in? Am I just wearing the costume of a kingdom citizen? Am I going through the motions but don't truly have that faith in Jesus' work alone? Am I trusting in the stuff I'm doing and not in him? Again, Jesus' intent in, in saying this, my intent in preaching this is not to have anybody here walk out of here today with, with false doubts. That's not, that's not what we're trying to do at all. Wondering if you're actually saved. It's really just to call you to consider the basis of your relationship with Jesus. What's the basis of it? Jesus says, the one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one, look at verse 21 again there, who does the will of the Father. That's the one who enters the kingdom. And yet, I know that, that that can be, what's important for us to see is that that's not a call to religious activity, at least not first and foremost. We hear doing the will of the Father, and I'm okay, like, okay, so what are the Ten Commandments? Okay, I need to do this stuff. No, first and foremost, what that's a call to is a call to surrender. It's a call to lay down your efforts, lay down all the places where you're seeking to earn your acceptance into the kingdom on your own terms, and submit yourself to God's terms. To, to lay down your own way of doing life, your own way of seeing what's best, your own way of, of these are my terms for how I want to enter the kingdom and accepting God's terms, which as we've seen here clearly, they're terms of grace. They are terms of acceptance that's already been fully accomplished on your behalf. Nothing you need to do just to receive. Apostle Paul pulls this all together in this way in a passage you've probably heard before from Romans chapter 3. It says, But now the righteousness of God, that is, a right standing with God, acceptance with God, has been made known, has been made available to you and to every single person apart from the law, that is, apart from any earning or, or deeds or accomplishments of your own, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who stands before the judgment seat of Christ having done enough to earn acceptance with him. We all stand as those who should be told, depart from me. But look, and are justified, are made right, are accepted by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a debt-canceling, wrath-diverting sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I think Keller put it so well, and I just want to close with this. We're all going to meet Jesus one day. Whatever you think about him, love him, hate him, want nothing to do with him, we're all going to meet Jesus one day. Won't you meet him in grace today? Meet him in the grace that he offers today. Surrender your will, surrender your way of doing things and seeing things for his. Lay down your efforts. Lay down your, your trophies and your accomplishments and your costume of kingdom citizen and trusting in his debt-canceling work alone, become by grace a true citizen of his welcomed and accepted for all time.
That's the only way. That is the only way Jesus presents to be truly a citizen of the kingdom and to truly know and be known by him. May we all meet him in grace today. Amen. Amen.